Uh, Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the treasures and the riches that are contained within the pages of the Bible. But unless the Holy Spirit makes them alive to us, they remain dead to us. So we pray your Holy Spirit will enliven us this morning to hear what you would want to hear and see what you want us to see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what's the difference between a freedom fighter and a terrorist? I suppose it's what side of the fence you're on, isn't it? You see, in Jesus' day, there was a group of Jews determined to rid themselves of the hated Roman occupiers. Uh, and there was a group of people that had political and military objectives, and they called themselves zealots. And not only was there hostility between these zealots and the Romans, but also with any Jew that supported the Roman occupation. In fact, in the lead-up to the successful rebellion against Rome in 67 AD, some zealots formed a society of assassins. And their role was to create terror, and they would knife, they would kill Jewish sympathisers, those that were sympathising with the Roman occupation. Now, given this hostility, what was Jesus thinking when alongside Simon the Zealot, he called Matthew the tax collector? Now, if you were organising a leadership team, would you organise people or get people in your team that were looking to stab each other, at least one or the other? When it comes to hostility between Simon and Matthew, you're looking 10 out of 10. You wouldn't leave them in the same room together, sort of hostility. So what was Jesus thinking when he called these two adversaries not only to follow him, but also to live in community with each other, to be with each other 24-7? Well, it's because reconciliation is at the core of Jesus' mission, not just to reconcile us with God, but to reconcile us with each other. Jesus came so those who would normally never get along, could be at peace with each other. Jesus came so those that previously hated each other, like Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, would now become brothers, united in Christ. And when this happens, we have the power of God on display. When critics say, oh, the gospel is a spent force, when those who oppose the church say, oh, the gospel is of yesteryear, when then those against us say, what good is the gospel, we can point to those who used to hate each other and are now getting along, who are now brothers and sisters. This is the power of the gospel. And doesn't the world crave this? Doesn't the world want reconciliation between enemies, hatred replaced by peace? And this is what we're going to explore this morning as we open up Ephesians chapter 2. The first half of this chapter is all about how Christ reconciled us to God. We're now in the second half of the chapter, and it's all about how Christ reconciles us with each other. And we're going to open up this passage by asking three questions. First of all, why do we need to be reconciled? What's God's solution? And then thirdly, how did God bring this about? Why we need to be reconciled? What's God's solution? How did God bring it about? So uh, why do we need to be reconciled? Well, it's twofold, because of separation and because of hatred. So let's deal with the separation that we used to be before Christ. 
And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that's us, who were called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, that's the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So, two things here. We were separated from Christ, and we've dealt with that over the last couple of weeks. But here in verse 11, verse 12, we're told that we are being separated from God's people. We were alienated with the Jewish folk who were God's people. There was a division between us and God's people, and that includes a division between us and the Jews. Now, Paul is using the word circumcision here as a label for Jewish folk. So today, how do we know whether someone is Jewish or not? Well, there are three main markers that make someone a Jewish. And the first marker is the food laws. So most of us know that a Jewish person won't eat pork or crayfish or shellfish and a number of other things that we might find particularly pleasant. But for a Jewish person, they have strict food laws. So that's one way we know if someone's a Jew or not. The second is through Sabbath keeping. From sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday, most of Saturday, Jewish folk will do no work. They keep the Sabbath. And the third marker is circumcision for males. They are circumcised. And it's this third marker that was picked up by the Jewish folk. Uh, They call themselves the circumcision, and everybody else, the Gentiles, the uncircumcision. It was a label. Now, as a label, uncircumcision, it's neutral. It describes people outside the kingdom of God, outside God's kingdom. It's accurate, and it has no emotional bias in itself. However, the Jewish folk had turned this neutral term, uncircumcision, into a derogatory term, into an insult, into a sneer, a way to look down on Gentiles. And nobody likes to be looked down upon, do they? So a growing hatred developed between those circumcised and those not. Uh, I do get a little ahead of myself. I'll talk about the hatred later on. But what about separation? What else are we separated from? We're separated, alienated from God's people. And so, again, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth. And the other thing we see is that we were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so not only were we alienated from God's people, separated from them, we also were separated from the covenants of promise. Now, the Jews had been given the law and a series of legal agreements called covenants. In these covenants, God pledged to be with his people and never leave them. These covenants had promises of blessings and hope, and they pointed to the coming Messiah and how he would set up the kingdom of God. But we Gentiles were excluded from all of this. We were excluded from all of the blessings of God. We were excluded from the coming of the Messiah. We were without these promises. And this is why verse 12 finishes with the words, having no hope and without God in the world. That is a description of all of us before we came to Christ. We were separated from God's people, separated from the promises, and separated from God and without hope. 
And that's pretty grim, but it gets worse because not only are we separated from God's people, but there is a hostility between us and God's people. And we see this in uh, verse 14 and 17 where the word hostility, well, it means hatred. There's a hatred that has developed between God's people and the rest of us. And this should never have been. God's word, the Old Testament, makes it very clear this should never have been because God's people were to be his representatives to the nations. The Jewish folk were to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to welcome Gentiles to come to Jerusalem and worship at the temple. But in all this, Israel failed. They used their privileges of laws and blessings to look down on those of us who never had them. And now verses 15 and 16, they directly refer to this hostility. And in particular, verse 15 references the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility that had sprung up. Now in the temple, there was a literal wall. There was a wall separating the outer courts where only Gentiles could go. And there was a wall, then there was an inner court and a final inner court, and then the holy temple. Now Jews could go into the inner, to the third court in, but the non-Jewish folk were restricted to the court of the Gentiles. And this wall, this dividing wall, had signs on it. And the signs weren't written in Hebrew for the Jewish folk. The signs were written in Greek, so the Gentiles could read it. And the signs said, if you pass this wall, you will die. Uh, we will kill you if you pass this wall. It's not a very friendly welcome, is it? But that's the wall of hostility. And there's an incident in Paul's life that shows this hostility very, very clearly, and it's all based around this wall in the temple. So uh, Acts 21. The background is Paul has just been to Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and he's on the way home. He arrives to Jerusalem where he fulfills a vow. Now, while he was in the streets of Jerusalem, he was walking with some friends, some Gentile friends, and some Jews from Ephesus, from Asia, they saw Paul walking in Jerusalem with some Gentile friends, and they assumed, wrongly, but they assumed that Paul had taken these Gentiles into the inner court, that he had invited them past that dividing wall. And this is what we pick up in chapter 21 of Acts, verse 27. Jews from Asia, that's Ephesus, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now, this wasn't to pray for healing. They weren't laying hands on him to pray for healing, for a pray for blessing, as we'll see. 28, verse 28, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. They're saying, they're saying, Paul has brought Gentiles across this dividing wall. And what it does is it unleashed a wave of hostility. Verse 30 of Acts 21. Then all the people, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill Paul, Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. This was the military commander. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Can you see the level of hostility that we're talking about here? A false accusation that Paul had brought a Gentile through that wall, through the gate into an inner court, 
unleashed a crowd that were willing to kill him. This is the sort of hostility that we're talking about here. And this is the sort of hostility that Jesus came to break down. Now, this separation between Jew and Gentile is actually a case study of most of the hatred and bloodshed that has been through the ages. Now, in the early church, this division between Gentile and Jew was, was in your face. It was very, it was something the church had to work through. But for us, we're a bit more distant from that Jew-Gentile division. But there are other divisions that this applies to. You see, a culture, a tribe, a faction, even a family will take what's distinctive to them, elevate it to the supreme, and then use this to look down on others, to oppress them and to hate on them. And this pattern that we see here in the Bible is repeated time and time again. So it might be in the area of race. We might be white. So we elevate our whiteness and our culture above all other cultures and we look down on those who aren't white and oppress them. And so what happens is we are separated and we are hostile and all sorts of evil then flows from this separation and hostility. Maybe in politics. You can't help but see the animosity in the politics in the United States, can you? I mean, it really, really is. In New Zealand, it's not so bad. But here's an example we might relate to. You might vote green. You might be very passionate about that. But you think you look at all these people that vote blue, and they always seem to be wanting to destroy the environment in your mind. They're very unwoke. Ask a 20-year-old what woke means, but... And so they elevate something that distinguishes them from others and they hate on everyone else. And so what happens? Separation and hostility. Education. You might have a supremely good education and you might elevate that and look down upon those who are not educated. You might treat them poorly or differently or just not speak to them. And so you have separation. You have hostility. It might be class. You might work in a factory, very proud that you work hard and you earn your pay, unlike the boss who you think, assume, puts his feet up all day and thinks of a way to oppress the workers. And so you elevate your distinctiveness and you then create a separation and a hostility. And I can go on and on and on. So what we're looking at today and the solution does not just apply to the Jew-Gentile division, but most, if not all, of our divisions in our society and in our lives. And so that's why the solution is not just academic. <laughs> it's not just something for theologians to say, well, how did the Jews and the Gentiles sort this out? This is very practical stuff. So how does God, what's his solution for this hostility and this separation that grows between us? Well, the answer is in verse 13 when it comes to separation. And in verse 14, we see God's answer to the hostility. So let's look at each of those in turn. So back in Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So God's plan is very clear. Those people that were separated and hostile, his plan is to bring them near. Think Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. That's his plan, to bring them together. However, bringing hostile people together, like a freedom fighter and a traitor, is actually a recipe for war, isn't it? Sometimes it's safer to keep them apart, to stop them, well, killing each other. So how does Christ deal with the hostility? Well, that's verse 13. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. God's solution is for Jesus himself to be our peace, the glue that holds us together and the mortar that keeps the stones in place. So this is what Jesus didn't do to Simon and Matthew. He didn't say, bring them together and say, uh, Simon, how many times have I told you to put that knife away? Um, now, you two, I want you to step outside. I want you to say sorry and shake hands. Sort it out. I mean, that's not what Jesus said, did he? Jesus is the peace that breaks down the hostility. So Jesus said to Simon, look to me, Simon. Keep your eyes on me. I am the peace that will break down the hostility between you and Matthew. And then he said the same to Matthew. Matthew, look to me. I am the peace that will break down your hostility. You could not put Matthew and Simon in the same room and say, like, don't come out of that room until you've got it sorted. Their hostility was too great, too deep, too ingrained, and it's the same with us. Jesus brings us close and then he breaks down the hostility between us. How? By saying, look to me. I am your peace. I am the peace that will glue your relationship together. There's a wonderful example of this, contemporary example of this, when it comes to the Berlin Wall. Now, what was the problem with the Berlin Wall? Well, a nation, a city of Germans that should not have been separated and hostile to each other were. Why? Because there was a wall down the middle of the city. Separation. Hostility. East German border cards were killing East Germans who were trying to cross to the west. And so the Berlin Wall represented hostility and separation. But then it was broken down. And overnight things changed. Overnight, East and West Germans were not separated. They could cross. Overnight, the soldiers' hostility towards the Germans stopped. They put down their guns and they stopped shooting. Now that's what Jesus has done when he has broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile between, and between races, between political factions. He has broken down the wall of hostility. And how has he done this? Well, he's done this through the cross. How did God bring this about? Through the cross. If you go back and have a look at verses 13 and 14, you'll see in verse 13 that is the blood of Jesus that brings us close. And then in verse 14, it's the body, the flesh of Jesus that breaks down the dividing wall. The blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus brings us together, stops us from being hostile. And this is so clear in verses 15 and 16. Verses 15 and 16. That he might, this is Jesus, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross Therefore, killing the hostility. Killing the hostility. It's a good way of putting it, isn't it? Because of the cross, because of Jesus' blood bringing us near, because of his body destroying the wall of hostility, not only are we reconciled with God and become born again, become new men and women, but he kills the hostility between God's people, between us. 
God brings us near to each other and destroys our hatred for one another by the cross, by his body broken and his blood shed. So the cross not only represents us being reconciled to God, but also with each other. And this brings us to an application. How are we going to make sense of this tomorrow morning, or even now, really? Well, here's a couple of questions. As a church, how good are we at not being separated and hostile to each other? In the positive, how near are we to those brothers and sisters in Christ that are different from us, and are we at peace with them? Are there friendships in our church that would have never happened if it wasn't for Christ being in our lives? In this church, are there people from different backgrounds and cultures, experiences, who worship, pray, serve, and rejoice together in Christ? Can non-church folk looking in be amazed at some of the friendships, the unity, and peace that are here amongst people that might not normally speak to each other? even be hostile to. Let us not be like the man who was shipwrecked. One time a man was shipwrecked and he was rescued. And it was evident that not only was he resourceful, but that he was a religious and devout man. In fact, he went round and showed his rescuers two huts that he had made. And he said, these are my two churches. And so the rescuers were quite puzzled and said, why do you need two churches? And he said, well, that's easy. I need one church to attend and one church to avoid. It's a bit like that, isn't it, sometimes? Now, this is not what the church should be like. Contrast this with with just a couple of weeks ago, and I was in a room with two other Christian brothers, and as I was driving home, I thought, you know, I would probably absolutely have nothing to do with these two guys if it wasn't for Christ. I probably would have avoided them. But it was definitely the highlight of my week. It really was. Opening God's word, sharing and praying with people that I would normally not have much to do with. I was very humbled by the work of Christ in our lives. So, let us make sure that our devotion to Christ is matched with a love for those he's called. Even if we'd normally have nothing to do with them. I mean, this is the power of God This is the power of the gospel on display and the strongest of witnesses to those outside the church. But those who would normally have nothing to do with each other are at peace with each other in the church. And of course, all this naturally leads to the communion table. We are about to take the body broken and the blood shed. And not only did Jesus remove the hostility and the distance between us and God, But on the cross, he also removed the hostility and the distance between us and each other. And though our focus on communion is the joy of being reconciled with God, we never take communion alone. We always take communion together, shoulder to shoulder, with people whom we have been reconciled with, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches and the treasures of your word. We thank you that Christ came and that because of the cross we're reconciled to you and we're reconciled to each other. Help us, Lord, to make that real. As a church, Lord, we we don't get it right all the time. And we confess, Lord, there are times when individually and even as a church we have turned our backs on brothers and sisters that we should have embraced. Have mercy, Lord. 
Teach us to open our hearts to each other as you open your hearts to us. As we come to the communion table, we pray for healing and reconciliation through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.